First John is part of clearly theologically connected and linguistically connected, but just the ideas the the to the gospel. Uh, to Second and Third John, and I think to the Book of Revelation. I what I do in okay, this is Cyril O'Regan, uh, and what but what O'Regan is doing is uh, he's taking and comparing Balthazar, and Balthazar is refuting Hegel, but what Balthazar is saying about Hegel is that he's doing. Uh, a Gnostic understanding that comes right out of Valentinian, which would, uh, you know, be uh, the same sort of Gnosticism that John is refuting. And so, what I do in reading John or reading Paul, I'm making a, a rather large assumption. It's a kind of faith assumption. And that is that when we say that Christ became, you know, incarnate or the Logos became flesh, that that is then addressing the basic human predicament, the most basic and universal false teaching, which I think is prototypically expressed through Gnosticism. So that uh, docetism, does there, the term docetism is just a, it's a form of Gnosticism. Uh, the idea that, you know, John will say, whoever says that Christ did not come in the flesh is of the Antichrist. And so the false teaching that is challenging the church in, in that day uh, is, uh, by the second century, is going to be a full-blown alternative to Christianity. Uh, I believe that in some way, false teaching, or even just a, a kind of misunderstood Christianity, tends to fall back into some form of, you know, Gnosticism is too strong, but something on the order of Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism is, it just is a dualism and I will define a, a dualism, you know, we, you'll hear people use this language, and I, I may not, I hope I use it consistently, but I may not. Uh, usually what we mean by a dualism, you know, think of um, the Star Wars, you know, there's the dark side, and there's the, that a dualism is an equally and uh, opposed force that opposite to one another. Um, that John then is going to in the gospel and in the in first John he's challenging this notion of a dualism because gnosticism is built upon a dualism i should go on and say then you know that it a dualism is not just to say there's two things you know there's light and darkness well john says that but he's not a dualist because clearly the darkness is not an equal force to the light, that the light penetrates the darkness, overcomes the darkness. There's life and death, but death is not uh, a force equal and opposite to life because Christ is risen. Uh, 
um, <clears throat> what is being said in, in a Gnostic understanding is that uh, you know the world of flesh and material things are evil and the spiritual then is completely separate from the evil uh, it is a kind of in, uh, fused with a plate, platonic understanding or a neoplatonic understanding uh, that you know the goal is in fact some for, so, form of escape from the world and so you, you know this may sound like various forms of Christianity that we may be familiar with um, that the idea is that we cannot know the essence of God or that we only know God through his effects um, or that in some way God is not available to us in Christ. And so this is what John is going to say in 1 John, that we know, you know who God is in and through the, the word that has revealed him. You know, that's the gospel, but it's also there that Christ is the light. So, uh, and I think that just as the Gnostic tendency is to deny that we have a direct access to God through Christ, every false teaching is of the same tendency. And so what I would say is the Gospel of John and the, the, the epistles of John are a corrective to any theology that would understand who God is on any other basis than in and through Christ. Uh, now that you, I'm not just saying religious stuff here. I just said something significant, and that is that we read the Bible through who Christ is. We understand reality through who Christ is. I don't think we have access to God, you know, through uh, any other means, through nature or through reason or through other means, other than than as Christ has revealed God to us. So, we could, you know, docetism, but I would say Platonism, Aristotelianism, Kantianism, Calvinism, or simply the tendency toward a dualism, which I would equate with sin, uh, is the nature of every false teaching. That's a huge claim. I mean, that's, you know, I'm just, it's a faith claim. And the reason I find the O'Regan book very interesting, here is a guy who's actually working this out in the details and saying, well, you can see this in Hegel. And it's significant in Hegel. I know you're not worried about Hegel. But Hegel's important because he's a kind of the summation of the Western philosophical, even theological tradition. And then also the, the major influence philosophically and theologically. So that uh, if you're saying that Hegelianism is a kind of false Christianity, you've just indicted a huge portion, uh, you know, theological and philosophical understanding. So, docetism is just, the word just means themism. You know, oh, it, Jesus seems to be in the flesh. He seems to, you know, it's like, oh, he leaves footprints in the sand. Uh, but, uh, or, or actually the opposite, that, that uh, his body is unreal, you know. Um, but I, I think that we can tend to do this in many ways. That is, we can can't tend to disembody 
uh, and to Christ, you know, even through the way that we read Scripture, I think a historical critical approach to Scripture that is continually looking to get behind the material form of the Word as we have it tends towards a kind of docetism uh, that we may be bent upon, uh, you know, some. Uh, idea that Christ in the flesh or this or scripture as it's given to us in a narrative form is just the outward understanding we need to penetrate that I think it's I think it's just the human tendency that I would trace back to Genesis this is my simple reading of Genesis the Genesis introduces a duality and if you take that as an end in itself it will be you know, the knowledge of good and evil. It's an ethical dualism. But if you take it as an ontological dualism, that you know, good and evil are two systems, um, then the way in which you know and understand... And by the way, know, everybody knows the word gnosis means knowing, right? So how do you achieve being in Genesis? Well, in and through knowing. Well, this is precisely what Gnosticism is, that you would know and that in and through this secret knowledge or this ecstatic understanding that you would attain to the being of God. It's almost following the very words of the devil in Genesis 3. And so, in, in my understanding, is that is the human impetus toward sin and knowing here not just an intellectual knowing Gnosticism is not really about intellect but it's about a kind of experience uh, a secret you know ecstatic experience um, so the lie of sin is to take duality or dualism or to take darkness the devil evil falsehood as a necessary and real counter to its opposite if you've ever studied apologetics, you know, somebody that says, well, we had to fall, the fall was necessary, because evil is a kind of, you know, learning experience. It's the, well, that's Gnosticism, that in, in some way would make evil a necessary counter to the good. Um, in Japan, I've, you've probably heard me talk about Kitado Nishida. You know, he says, he, he's a, a nice illustration of this. He's a Zen Buddhist thinker. But he says that, you know, there's Satan and there's God. But I'm greater than both Satan and God because they are a duality. But in myself, I can create a synthesis that overcomes both Satan and God. And so... There's light and dark, good and evil. That's, uh, you know, that's the, the, the identity through difference that we've talked about with Paul. It's there in John. <clears throat> that is, it takes what I think is happening. It's taking alienation and making that alienation the place that you reify and you make it an ontology. So the, the common characteristic of these groups that are contemporary with John is that if you have, in other words, they're saying, oh, you have to have this esoteric or you have to have this intuitive knowledge, <coughs> and that will save your soul, 
And soul here, they're thinking not in terms of an, a Hebraic understanding of soul, but of a Platonic understanding of soul, that your soul will be saved from the material world. So you remember Plato talks about the body being the prison house of the soul. So knowing is the means to escape death in the material world. And knowing, not knowing Christ, but knowing this secret knowledge or this having this esoteric understanding. Um, and what John is going to say, he's in both First John and what he said in the Gospel, is that this dualism is a false dualism. In other words, there's... Uh, uh, it's not really that there is an ontological order that is opposed and equal and opposite to God. Um, darkness and death are ultimately empty categories. Constituted, you know, what constitutes the darkness? Well, you can constitute the darkness, just close your eyes, you know. That doesn't mean that uh, there isn't light that's available. And so, too, the world, and John will use the word cosmos in both the epistles and in the gospel. Uh, he's talking about a systemic darkness that's created by human beings. It's not a reality created by God. It's not even a, an actually existing reality. But it's a, rea a, you know, a supposed reality that has been put in place by human beings. Um, so it is not that the Christian believes and the Gnostic knows, though there is that sense. John will use the word, you know, he'll talk about believing in Christ as the key. But what God has done for man and to man and what man owes to God uh, in the way of obedience uh, is kind of stands juxtaposed to a Gnostic knowledge, which is a secret experiential knowledge, as a technique for salvation, and that's what that's what will happen. You know, it's sort of the the uh, again. I think that what false teaching will continually do is that somebody will teach you a technique, or somebody will teach you how to do it and this technique will get you saved and what you're describing then is not the holistic difference that Christianity should amount to you know, John's talking about the darkness as constituting one cosmos but the light then is uh, it's a, a recreation so the first John begins very similar to the gospel. He's going to talk about in the beginning. And everybody remembers those three words from Genesis that John is talking about. Uh, you know, that uh, here is uh, the recreation that Christ inaugurates. Uh, so in, in John, you know, in the first verses we're going to read tonight, He's going to talk how we've, you know, handled, we've seen, you know. So there's an ongoing battle between knowing, seeing, believing, the darkness and the light. And Christ is penetrating the darkness. In the gospel, he says that the darkness has not comprehended it. And the word comprehend means to encompass or overtake. 
uh, in 1 John 2.8, he says, the darkness is passing by. And it's almost like the, the epistle is taking up where the gospel left off. The darkness is passing by and the true light is already shining. Uh, so John unfolds this battle in a progressive manner so that believing involves into di- discipleship at the end of the gospel, but by the time we get to the epistles, you know, the, the light is shining. It's, it's here, and the place that we find this light, the place that we find this alternative. You know, again, you got a picture that uh, we're probably in Asia Minor, maybe in Ephesus. That's where most people locate John at the end of his life. Uh, this is probably not a huge group of believers. It's a, they're house churches, uh, you know, probably in Ephesus, um, and so it's the, uh, you know, it may not be a group much larger than this group. It may be that there are several groups in Ephesus and, and there, uh, but the point is that in and through these new communities that are being established, there is an alternative humanity. Uh, the way that both the epistle and the you know uh, the gospel will talk about that is that Christ has come to defeat the devil. Um, that uh, the uh, the uh, he lays out these dualisms in the broadest sense. Not to affirm affirm them or the antagonism to which they support, but he's going to empty this antagonism to show that Christ has defeated the antagonism and ultimately then in defeating this antagonistic, you know, darkness and death, that's the defeat of the devil. Think in, in the Gospel of John, how is the devil defeated? Does anybody remember the key verses in the Gospel? In terms of the defeat of Satan. In the Gospel of John? Yeah. Because I saw Satan. I forgot how it goes exactly, but something about light, lightning or something? Fell down like lightning? Yeah. Is that, was that, is that it? I was thinking of the verse that when I am lifted up, mm. yeah, the prince of this world will be cast down. And so I, I think we continually have to ask ourselves why that? Why, why, and of course he's talking about the crucifixion. Why that? How does that cast out Satan? But it, it seems that when on the cross, <clears throat> that Christ is directly dealing with the devil. Well, if we add, you know, uh, the picture then that what is the work of the devil? The work of the devil is death and darkness. That it is this world that's constituted on a lie. It's a world constituted on the notion that death is in some way absolute. The writer of Hebrews will talk about the fear of death and being enslaved to this fear of death. Paul talks about, uh, in Romans 8, the fear of death. And so the way that what Christ is doing is freeing us from slavery, freeing us from what form of slavery? Well, we can talk about it as a slavery to sin, a slavery to darkness, a slavery to death, slavery to the devil, but it's all the same thing, right? Because in some way, there has been a lie that we have bought into, and this alternative world is constituted then 
in and through this lie. And so part of the lie is that reality is removed from us, that we don't have access to God, that we have to, you know, death has made the doorway, the passageway, to see God. I think that you could visit many churches on a Sunday morning and hear the same kind of language. That death is our friend, you know. You can, you want to die and go to heaven and be be with Jesus. <clears throat> it, it, it's just a, you just tweak that a little bit, and that's of course what Hegel has done. Hegel has made not the death of Christ salvation, but he's made death salvation. This is what Heidegger does. But this is also what Gnosticism does. So it's never, it, there's nothing new under the sun. That it's going to make death an absolute. And in some way you deal with death. That death is the passage to this other realm. The way that John combats this, uh, first of all, he'll do it like he does in the gospel. That he says, well, I, I'm an eyewitness. We've seen him. We've, we've, uh, 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 touched him, we've uh, handled him, we've looked upon him, uh, and it's kind of a progressive engagement uh, with Christ. And then he says, that which was not began, that is, that, in, that here is the one who is without beginning. Here is John's teaching in the epistle of uh, the pre-existence of Christ that he is, you know, the, the clear claim of divinity. Uh, so the theological, con you know, uh, idea here that uh, in both the uh, letter and in, uh, in the gospel is, that, is a reference, I think, to Genesis. And we could talk here, but I, I won't stop and talk that John does this. He doesn't re refer as much in the epistles as he does in the gospel to the Old Testament. You know, the, the, the gospel seems clearly to be written to Jews, for Jews. Uh, I don't know that we can come to any conclusion on the basis of such short letters, but he, he, I think we can presume the same sort of understanding uh, that Christ then is the fulfillment of creation. So what I'm claiming, and what I think John is claiming, this... You know, if I'm wrong about this, I'm wrong about John. I'm, I may be wrong about the Bible. Uh, I'm saying that sin is the singular structure. Uh, it, I'm not saying it always manifests itself in the same way. Uh, and John is addressing this singular structure. That is, if we read John rightly... I think we are put in a position of understanding the deep grammar of false teaching and sin. It will always appear, to, and it will have the characteristics of a, a dualism, of a kind of identity. You know, we've talked about identity through difference, and then an absolute difference. You know, this is the kind of the Gnostic uh, uh, structure. Um, and I think that what the false teaching in John's day was <clears throat> it's still the false teaching down the street. And you can get various flavors of it in the various communities of worship that one might attend. 
but I think it's just the false teaching that gets repeated again and again. Uh, I don't think there's anything hard about what John is saying, but I think there's something that we are, in fact, lovers of darkness rather than lovers of light. It's a radical thing that we're called to. We're called to come out of the darkness and come into the light. And John will give us clear markers. By the time we finish this book, there's no question, are you in the light? What are the signs that you're in the light? Do you know what signs he's going to use? Loving your brother. You love your brother. Uh, do you, you know, and that, yeah, do you obey? Uh, and, of course, the, the, the primary commandment is uh, that we obey is the commandment of love. <clears throat> so, uh, that love relationship, uh, think, of, think of it here, it is the counter to the alienation, separation, antagonism that characterize. You know, what are these false teachers doing? Think here of what Paul was combating in both Galatians and Romans. The people, the false teachers come in, they want to alienate and separate. And what Paul is doing, he's arguing for unity. Uh, John's doing the same thing. The false teachers want to come in, they're saying, oh, you don't have the secret, you know, esoteric knowledge. They want to alienate and separate and antagonize and love then being maintaining the unity of the fellowship the unity of that is in a sense that's the cure Um, so uh, maybe maybe we that's enough there but uh, the idea is that death or alienation or negation is undone. Christ dies to defeat death. And uh, First John says, "Little ch- children, make sure no one deceives you." This is First John three seven and eight. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. So how do you know? Well, he's righteous like Christ is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Christ come? To destroy the works of the devil. If you understand what the works of the devil are and how they're all-encompassing, you understand then the new world order that's being ushered in. Yes? Um, What do you mean when you say we have direct access to God and Christ, and how is that different from the type of direct access that Gnosticism offers in like a mystical union? It's a wonderful question and I think the idea is that Gnosticism even though it's a gnosis or it's a knowing I think what in fact it is uh, claiming is that it is a surpassing of any kind of ordinary knowing and it's an you know knowing in in this sense is an experiential thing. And so, as my understanding of Gnosticism, it is in fact not something you can articulate this experience, but it's only something that you can experience. So it's an experiential knowing. Like the beatific vision? I, I would relate it to the beatific vision, but I don't mean to, I don't mean to denigrate, I don't, wouldn't put them on a, Gnosticism is clearly a false teaching, 
beatific vision may not be so clearly a false teaching. And so, how, how, what does it mean to know Christ? Well, it, it, I, I don't mean to in any way leave out the experiential side of it, but the way in which we know Christ is not separate from the word of Christ. The, something that we can uh, know in a, you know, John's going to say we've seen him, we've handled him, we've looked upon him. And I think what he's doing is countering this knowledge that would surpass this ordinary seeing, handling, and looking upon. So what about Christian, I don't know, I'm just, you're talking about experiences. I'm thinking of all the times and people's testimonies with quote-unquote experiences. Like, you go to a conference and you hear a megachurch guy and, you know, you have an experience or you're baptized and you have an experience and you have, like, or worship services and it's, like, very, I don't know. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I think that our tent, in other words, I don't want to just wipe out all experience. That's not what I'm saying in any way. But I think what you're talking about is that our tendency is to fall back into this idea that the knowledge that we have in Christ must in some way be a special knowledge that transports us to another realm. You know, I don't know that anybody stands or that articulates it quite in that way. But you know, if the drums are beating loud enough, and the you know the four, you know, chords on the guitar are repeated enough, um, and we sing the hymn, you know, or not a hymn, but the chorus, or or any, you know, it, the idea is that you can have an experience that is in some way uh, uh, will take you out of. Uh, ordinary embodied experience if that's what is being sought and I'm not saying that's always what's being sought but even if uh, unconsciously the idea is that in and through this ecstatic emotional experience I've come to encounter Christ in some super ordinary way I think it's the same danger that John is facing okay so a lot of people who come from a Pentecostal tradition, that their experience is, like, if they can't speak tongues, they're not a real Christian. And, like, Christian Collins has talked about that and how, like, I think it might have been him, but, like, they never were able to speak tongues, and people who could speak tongues didn't really think of them as much as a Christian. Yeah, and uh, what I, actually, the last lecture I did in our little theology group I talked about the Holy Spirit and talked about the role. You know, what is the speaking in tongues? I think it is a sign of barriers being broken down. The thing that divided people in Babel was the barrier of language. I think that 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 barrier is, in fact, the key behind ethnic, you know, racial, tribal, every other religious that in orig- the original barrier is linguistic. And all of those things then flow out of that linguistic difference, that these people's worlds are going to be constituted according to the limited, the delimitation of language 
not an absolute delimitation. Um, Joelle's doing her paper on on language, and um, and so what's happening at Pentecost is those barriers are being broken down, and the sign of those barriers being broken down is that they, you know, the the miracle of the language, whether it's the hearing or it's the speaking, whatever that miracle is, that the word of Christ then uh, is a word that does not separate, but it unifies. And so the speaking in tongues is, I think, directly a resolution to the alienation of religion, of ethnicity, of race, all of these things, and that's, you know, the, the peoples there on the day of Pentecost, they're all Jews, but they're Jews from all over the world. And then the next person to experience this is not a Jew, you know, it's Cornelius. Uh, so the sign is that both the Jews and the Gentiles are brought into one united family. Uh, so my understanding is that the work, the primary work of the Holy Spirit is a interpersonal work that the Holy Spirit draws us together breaks down barriers between us and constitutes us as a unified family uh, I'm afraid that and, and again you know we could talk about the charismatic movement has there been positive things there may have been many positive things that have come out of this I think the charismatic movement itself arises because of a misunderstanding precisely of the same order that we're describing here. Uh, first of all, how do you know God? And what is the work of the Holy Spirit? I think that the Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement is filling in a vacuum of misteaching that preceded it in Protestantism and a Protestant nominalism that presumed a kind of barrier. You know, this is really Luther. You know, you want to you get it you know what's the who's the fault at fault here for the rise of the modern charismatic movement? I'd take it back to Martin Luther and a Lutheran nominalism. And what I mean by nominalism is what I'm describing as Gnosticism. That is that we do not have access to God uh, in and through you know normal everyday through Christ and through. But we only have a kind of, that God is absolutely removed from us, that God is hidden from us, and that we do not have access to that hiddenness of God. So, I mean, somebody could do a huge research paper on, but I, I think ultimately there's a series of misteachings, and I'm still holding to my claim that what even the problem in, uh, you know, the charismatic movement relates to an earlier problem and all of these problems are not dissimilar from the problem that John is addressing in both the gospel and the epistle. How do you know God? How do you have a true experience of God? You know, Thomas says, Jesus, we would see the Father. And Jesus is disappointed. He says, Thomas, don't you know by now that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, and I think that's the, the realization that John is driving home. That our tendency will be to pursue God uh, 
in some otherworldly, ecstatic, you know, disembodied sense. But where God meets us is in the fellowship of the saints, is in the unity of the, you know, the bond of the Spirit, the unity of believers, that it's precisely where two or three are gathered together that you're going to, are you going to have experiences? Oh yeah, of course you'll have experiences. But not, you know, uh, you know Paul's blinding vision on the road of De- to Damascus, or his being—he doesn't talk about those things as if they're ordinary. Uh, those things may happen, but as Christians, this experience that we're seeking is the experience of, you know, the bond of unity in the body. And so, I think the pursuit of God through these sort of charismatic ecstatic, you know, miraculous means is to really say that Christ in some way in his incarnation, in his fleshly, you know, existence has proven inadequate. That the word of Christ is in some way, we want something more than that. That the body of Christ that we have in the church is in some way not enough. Uh, that would be my the beginning of an answer. Uh, it's, a, it's almost like how we do how we do that is like a way of how we what you call it the identity through different you know, it's, uh, to one another, you know. And I mean, I don't see that as like one of the example, but like how I. Also, see it too is like the way that we we uh, we become a good Christian. Uh, you know, the things that we do to to say that we are a good Christian, uh, and having experienced that way, that we have accomplished something. Yeah. Oh, I speak in tongues, or I've seen visions, or I can. Well, that's precisely what the Gnostics are saying. That they've got this super knowledge, this secret knowledge, and you have to have the secret knowledge to be saved. I, you know, we're getting pretty close to complete heresy here. If you say you have to have this particular experience uh, uh, to, to be saved. But I'm not, I don't mean to pick on anybody because I just think that's what we do. That's the, the tendency. Let me close here with, uh, uh, this is Miroslav Volf. And Miroslav Volf is very interesting because he's kind of, it's like he's come into this as a kind of new player. In the, and, you know, if you read uh, uh, commentators on John, they're often very boring and they all sound the same. And Volf has... I, I think he brings a, a, a perspective that's very interesting. Here's a here's Wolf. God is not only the creator, but also the redeemer of creation. The aim of God's redemptive activity is to overcome oppositional dualities. Darkness versus light, below versus above, falsehood versus truth. So as to leave room in creation only for reconciled differences. By becoming flesh, the word intimately united itself precisely 
to that which has alienated itself from God. Moreover, God loved the world that was opposed to God, and the incarnate word became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, The way that he says this is, you know, that it's not that there is an obliteration of differences. It's that the differences then are united. You know, we've talked about Jew, Gentile, male, female, uh, slave, free in Paul. Well, John is going to talk about similar kinds of dualities that exist perhaps in a different sort of fashion. Uh, light, dark, life, death, truth, falsehood. Uh, and there is then an overcoming of these oppositional differences in John. So I think it's Paul and John are doing similar things and dealing with similar problems that articulate, but they're articulating the, the problems are articulated in a different way and the solution, but I don't think that the that we're really changing. Uh, you know, it's not a, a huge change in subject matter. Okay, First John. Uh, Miguel, you got the first verse. Oh. Wait, I, okay, so it's the difference between experience maybe we have an embodied experience with Christ. What the heck does that mean? Because you mentioned embodied. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Because we do have, we do experience Christ and we do experience redemption. Because uh-huh. if you don't experience redemption, then what are you doing? You're not really redeemed. We have to experience redemption. We have to experience fellowship. But it's embodied, maybe? I don't know. What I mean by the word embodied, uh, first of all, I don't think, it's my personal belief, we really don't have the, the notion that, and this is highly contestable, I don't think there is such a thing as disembodied experiences. But that's what the Gnostics think. That's what they're trying to do. That's what they're trying to do. They want to escape this mortal coil in some way. They're denying their embodiment trying to achieve some spiritual plane or knowing. That's it. So they want to, they want to be disembodied. Our tendency is not toward incarnation, but toward disincarnation. This is why, you know, I think Jesus is really the first incarnate person. Because he's fully inhabiting the flesh, the body. Not so that the flesh or the body dictates to him who he is. But in fact, I think that a principle of the flesh is this antagonism that tends toward being disincarnate and disembodied. Now this, you know. So what I mean by embodiment is just, uh, it, it really encompasses the ordinary human language. Human language is embodied. I mean, this is Wittgenstein. Uh, but uh, I think human experience is embodied. I don't think that we really have you know, access to. But also in the term is the idea of the body of Christ. That the body then, once we refer to our the reality of who we are in terms of embodiment, 
then simultaneous with that, you've also then talked about uh, interpersonal and social relations. So what it means, you know, that to be embodied is to be, you know, I got a mommy and a daddy, and I was born in a particular place, and a family, and a culture, and a, so that embodied is this uh, estate that we share, we share with people. The tendency, the opposite tendency it, toward disembodiment is to in some way discount this interconnectedness with one another and focus upon some sort of interiority, you know, either an interior experience or an interior thought or uh, it can be any number of things. So where is the spirit present? The spirit is present in the body of Christ or two or three together together. deal with my interiority which is very much a thing I need to do in my daily living you know it's like, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to be like how do I well I know better than to take my own subjectivity seriously yeah, and I, I don't in any way mean to discount our, you know, interiority. I just that I don't think it's a realm apart. Uh, healthy interior, you know, this is the realization of Bonhoeffer in life together, that someone who cannot be with other people cannot really be alone. And someone who cannot be alone cannot be with other people. Uh, and so the two things go together. Yes, we need a healthy uh, prayer life and thought life, and uh, we need to be able to be by ourselves. But the way that we're constituted as persons is not through some sort of absolute individualism, but it's through a healthy uh, interpersonal relationships. Um, that is that. And I, th- I think that, uh, you know, this is picture, picture Jesus, picture the disciples here. That, that uh, I always, th- you know, they're, uh, think of the Apostle Paul, you know, I, I, or John. You know, think of John as an old man. The picture is that he can't walk anymore. You've all, you've heard this tradition, right? That in Ephesus that he was the last surviving apostle. He had been tortured, uh, boiled in oil, we think, survived on the Isle of Patmos, and really is not up to even speaking anymore in the church. And so the young men uh, of the church come and they put him on a pallet and they'll carry him to church. And Polycarp will talk about John as an old man and Polycarp, by the way, is the teacher of Irenaeus. Irenaeus writes against heresies, against heresies as against the Valentinian Gnostics. So that we've got a direct you know, line here from John to the early church teaching and also then false teaching and from Valentinianism to Hegelianism. 
But John then is, it said Polycarp, I think it's Polycarp that says he would, you know, what little he could speak, he would say, little children love one another. So these are people that they, uh, you know, they're not desert mystics sitting on poles or going into caves or they're not Buddhist, Zen Buddhist monks, you know, standing under cold waterfalls. They're not ascetics. Are they people who had a rich and healthy interiority? Oh, absolutely. But what was the basis of that rich and healthy interiority? I think it was their rich interpersonal relationships with others, their love of other people. Uh, you got to love people in this particular faith. <laughs> if you don't, well, what if people don't love you back? Is that required? <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it? Um, yeah, that we're to even love those who, in fact, maybe not are not capable of loving. Right? Some people are just incapacitated in that way. But we need to love them anyway. Right? So, what I hear you saying is um, isolation. If you're isolated, you're in danger of being embodied, disembodied. Because like the important part of Christianity is to be a part of the body of Christ. I think so. The disembodied in that sense of dis, at least uh, separate from the body of Christ. Whenever I'm saying this, I'm always aiming this right at me. And you all, you know, this was my uh, early understanding of Christianity. I just would, I would have been happy to ride off into the sunset on my horse and with my dogs and Brother Coyote. And, um, but uh, that that was, I, I, you know, I was immature. It's an immature understanding of Christianity. Maybe God allows us to pass through that, but we should pass through that. If you don't like them, <laughs> if you don't like people, uh, yeah. So I, I think that uh, this is the meaning of the, this. Is the whole? This is John, you know. But God is love, and John, it's definitive of who God is. And so ultimately, I think it's definitive of our humanity. I don't know what else you got going that's better than loving other people. You got you want to play golf, you know? I don't know what do you got? Football, love. Uh, I don't, you know. So I mean that it that that it is the thing that makes gives meaning to everything else, including our Christian faith. If you're a hateful, mean Christian, I think maybe you've missed the point. Did we read? Did you read, Miguel? What are you just sitting there? (laughs) (laughs) Give us the give us the first one there. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was. Okay, let's stop there. Because the he's opening with heavy stuff, right? There's nobody any heavier than John. 
Yet this is often the, you know, people want to hand out tracts with the gospel or, you know, because it's it's both heavy and yet it's in some way it's easy. Um, that he's claiming several things here that that which was from the beginning, what was from the beginning? Well, he's talking, I think, about the pre-incarnate Christ and we'd have to, you know, uh, break the the vocabulary down here but he's also claiming a, uh, making a claim about his own apostleship we've seen with our eyes that is he knew Christ we've looked at uh, you know think of Thomas we've touched Thomas put his hand in the side and I suppose they had all had you know John at the last supper is pictured leaning on the breast of Jesus and so they they know Jesus uh, and so that I think is the authority that we proclaim in in mine, and I think rightly so, concerning the word of life. That we have the word of death, you know, we have a death dealing lie in the sat- satanic deception, and we have the word of life in Christ. Uh, Shall we read verse... Let's just do a few tonight, but can we read verse 2? Does anybody have 2? Taylor, you got 2? Yes. Uh, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. And there's no secret here that he's talking about resurrection. Is the resurrection in the epistle of John? I think we just read it. Some commentators say, oh, there's no resurrection in this book. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that the person, you know, the, the life, death, resurrection of Christ is all of a piece here. And so it's not, I don't mean in any way, and I don't think John means to in any way isolate the death and the resurrection, but the eternal life that has appeared uh, was made apparent at the death and resurrection of Christ, the manner that he died. Um, and then, uh, Caitlin, you want to finish? I can't see. We got. Go ahead and finish three and four. That that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Uh, the the picture is that knowing this thing doesn't cause us to be disconnected from one another but knowing this think of John 14 15 you know the the final discourse that you know the father and the son and the spirit all indwell one another and that Christ then is talking about the spirit coming that they too might experience that we too might experience this indwelling and so uh, we proclaim this that you might have fellowship with us and so our fellowship was on the basis of an inner trinitarian fellowship that's what we believe right that we are co-participants in an inner trinitarian fellowship that is unfolding for all people to participate in 
That's in the Eastern Orthodox Church is called deification. I, at least that's my understanding of deification. It's not that we become gods in some literal, you know, but we become co-participants in the Trinity. And that's what John is saying is the basis of the church's fellowship. And with that understanding, we can have the experience without the oil even of joy. Right? <laughs> but the oil will help. <laughs> that there is a profound, not necessarily, you know, a ha 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 kind of, but a profound uh, contentment, peace, and joy that's available to us in and through this fellowship of participation. Thus we began first time.